Wisdom. What do you do when you gather the best minds, the outstanding ministers, you put together the faithful servants of the church into a council of wisdom, and then the council doesn't produce much wisdom. This is the problem with the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. It's a great gathering. All the important people are there, the wisest, the best, the leaders. The problem is, at the end of it, they just don't make much sense. They miss the boat. What do you do when you have a council of wisdom and the result is they don't produce much wisdom? As a matter of fact, the conference might not have ever had to take place if it hadn't been for a couple of rabble-rousers that left Jerusalem and went up to Antioch to create problems. Undoubtedly, their journey was just to throw a wrench into the works. These were Christians who had come from Jerusalem. Now, their background was they were Pharisees. They had been converted, undoubtedly, at Pentecost or sometime afterwards, considering Jesus' relationship to the Pharisees, but they'd been converted at some point afterwards. They moved to Antioch, or they go up to Antioch, because Antioch's become the, the springboard into the Gentile world. Out of the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, and I'm sure others, the gospel is being preached to non-Jews. And that doesn't make these former Pharisees very happy. They didn't uh, have the benefit, apparently of having gone through the support of the ministry of John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist, who when Jesus shows up, looks and says, I must decrease, he must increase. Apparently, these Pharisees converted to Christianity, said Jesus must increase, but Moses has to stay about the same or even a little bit more important. So they have a problem here. In their minds, salvation meant... It meant that all these Gentile Christians had to obey the law of Moses. Primarily, in order to be saved, they had to be circumcised. Get this now. In order to be saved, they had to be, circ they had to be circumcised. Now, that means basically that Jesus on the cross doesn't matter that much, but circumcision, that's a big deal. Jesus may have gone to the cross, and he may have been resurrected from the, day, from the grave, but the most important thing in your salvation is, can I get your foreskin? And ladies, let's just gather all the men together to help them understand that when all this talk comes up, it has absolutely nothing to do with you. So I have no idea how you get saved. Maybe it's by childbearing. This is a very important conference. What's at stake? Everything's at stake. The whole idea of the church and of the gospel is at stake. What are we going to do? Are we going to proclaim Jesus as the Christ and that he is central to our faith? Are we going to go back and just try and incorporate Jesus into our faith, much like we incorporate any of the other prophets, whatever their names may be, from Elijah and Elisha? to Isaiah, to whomever. Also, the idea of how you get saved is at stake here, isn't it? Because you're either going to follow the law, which is a works righteousness, or you're going to follow Jesus Christ, who is offering grace and forgiveness. Those are two very different ways to proclaim the gospel. What's at, what's at stake here? The literal reality is that everything is at stake. 
I have the sense, and Dr. Miller, I'm sure, can correct me on this, but I have the sense that if Paul's theology about grace is not already fully formed at this point, it becomes far more crystallized after this council in Jerusalem. Because he goes on to tell the Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, it is not of works, lest anyone should boast. What's at stake here? Everything's at stake. And the debate, at least according to the way the message puts it, gets pretty heated. And my guess is it, it does, because, you know, it's church people. And so the debate gets heated. There's passionate people on both sides of this, of this debate. It's, it's a rather fierce time. I don't think they resolved this in 10 minutes. They're back and forth. They're arguing here and there. It's a fight for the soul of the church, if you will. And so everything is at stake. And Peter finally gets up and addresses the council. When Peter gets up to address the council, I have the feeling that in his own mind he's saying, well, this is the job that I have. After all, Jesus is gone. He sent the Spirit. I've been the chief spokesman for all of the apostles, so now it's time to stand up and put an end to this argument. And so he stands up, and he starts talking about his experience with the vision and with Cornelius. And it relates really well because it has two parts to it. The two parts to it are talk about the vision, and that's the vision of all the animals that you couldn't eat as a Jew, and God saying, whatever uh, I have made clean, you cannot call unclean. The second part of the vision is when the guys from Cornelius' house show up and say, he's called for you to come, and he goes to Cornelius' house. And I love that part, because he gets to Cornelius' house, and he said, I'm here because God told me that I should go with the three men that you sent. What do you want? <laughs> he's not really happy to be there. It's not like he comes in and says, oh, man, this is the greatest thing in the world. We're finally going to open up the door to the Gentiles. He basically says, all right, I'm here. What do you want? He's so scared of this, he's so apprehensive about this, that he takes along several Jews from Joppa with him because he knows he's going to get in trouble for entering into Cornelius' Gentile's house. And Cornelius, I love it, turns the tables on him and says, well, the Lord gave me a vision. He spoke to me. He said I was to call for a man uh, named Peter who was at this house in Joppa uh, at the Tanner's house and that you were to come and to speak to us. So we're here. What do you have to say? And Peter is stuck. Because he knows God has called him to the house. It's been confirmed not only by God's vision to him, but by what, the, uh, what Cornelius has said. And he, uh, he says, what am I going to say? And the only thing he's got to say is the gospel. And so he decides to preach the gospel, assuming, I'm sure, that it's not going to have much fruition among all of these Gentiles. But sure enough, as soon as he's in the midst of this preaching and things are getting exciting, the Holy Spirit falls. It's like a mini Pentecost happens on Cornelius' house. And Peter tells him this story and says, I learned from that that God is no respecter of persons. And so we ought to open it up. And the speech is an utter failure. He introduces Paul and Barnabas. They get up and they talk about all the miracles and wonders that have taken place. And that probably is more persuasive than Peter's speech. Because in the end, the decision... Uh, brokered by James, who becomes the compromiser here, you know, the great compromiser. We're in legislative session, and so we're going to come up with a compromise. And the great compromise is, well, circumcision is off the table, but there are three things we need to instruct the Gentiles to do. And two of them are about dietary laws, <laughs> which cracks me up because Peter's vision was about all the animals that are all now clean because God says they're clean. 
But two of the rules that they're going to impose on the Gentiles is, one, don't buy meat that's uh, dedicated to idols, and the other thing is don't buy any meat that doesn't have all the blood strangled out of it. And oh, by the way, be pure in sex. Sounds like youth ministry, right? Oh, no, by the way, be pure in sex. We'll add that in. So can you tell me why circumcision is off the table, but a rare steak isn't? And how that relates to salvation. What it is, is that this council of wisdom gathers together, and their ultimate answer is, yes, we ought to follow Jesus, sort of. Maybe we ought to follow all the other stuff, too. Maybe we ought to make sure that we follow at least some of the rules that come from Moses. Now, I like Moses' laws. I enjoy studying them. But ultimately, the responsibility that I have is to Jesus and not to the Mosaic law. And they can't get there. They can't get there. Now, this isn't the first time that they've gathered together in a council of wisdom, and the council of wisdom doesn't produce much wisdom. After all, you remember when they got together after Jesus had been ascended into heaven, and they say, as they're sitting together, well, let's have a vote, because we're down one apostle, because yeah, Judas did what he did. So we got to reappoint somebody else, so we have 12. So let's have a vote. Anybody got any sticks? And so they get a couple of sticks, one shorter than the other, and they say, all right, uh, gather two men that uh, we think would be good. And so they get two guys, they get Matthias, and they get another guy who apparently has an identity crisis. Because his name is Joseph, he's called Barsabas, and he's also called Justa. I don't know who this guy is. And the reason that I don't know who this guy is is because after they pull the, 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 the sticks and they find out who's got the short straw... He loses, and you never hear about him again in all of Scripture. But thank God Matthias won, because after they finish that, you never hear about Matthias for the rest of Scripture. Matter of fact, what you have is you have the Apostle Paul saying, oh, by the way, God appointed me to be the Apostle. You see, when we gather together in, the, in this council of wisdom to produce our wisdom, rarely do we actually get wisdom. If that was the... <laughs> If that was the only one, that would, be, that would be one thing. But there's another crisis, another council that they get together while they're in Jerusalem. It's in Acts chapter 6. You remember this one, where they have problems about the, the Greek-speaking widows are getting cheated in the food distribution. And so, talk about a bad decision. Here's a really terrible decision. The apostles come up and they say, listen, we shouldn't have to sacrifice preaching and teaching to wait on tables. So choose some people among you and they can be in charge of the service and will be in charge of preaching. And unfortunately, the church has embraced that down through thousands of years. And tell me, how can you separate the idea of preaching and teaching the word from serving? That's a terrible decision. As a matter of fact, it's so bad that the guys that they appoint to be servers disobey it. I mean, they take care of the, the waiting on tables, right? But two of them are Stephen, who gets martyred for doing what? Serving tables or preaching? <laughs> so he's serving tables and he's preaching. He gets martyred. And then you have Philip, who's serving tables, and his name is Philip the Evangelist. <laughs> 
So he gets known for being an evangelist kind of person. He gets swept up by the Spirit and taken to Gaza and all that story because he doesn't see how you can separate the idea of preaching and serving. And frankly, neither can I. So what do you do when the counsel of wisdom produces very little wisdom? Why should we create a hierarchy of these people are more important than these people? And that's what they do in Acts chapter 6. They say being an apostle is more important than serving on tables. And serving tables is more important than being served. And I'm not sure that hierarchy works. We're either all part of the church or we're not. Just because we have different gifts and calling doesn't mean that we aren't all equal in his sight. What do you do when the counsel of wisdom doesn't produce much wisdom? And that's a question I've been considering for quite some time now. Because the church seems to be enamored with the idea of having counsels of wisdom. And those counsels of wisdom rarely produce wisdom. I've been a pastor now, still am. I, I'm an associate pastor now because, you know, I do this. So I'm an associate pastor at my church. I've been in pastoral ministry for 40 years plus. I can tell you the one thing that I hate about pastoral ministry. It's called the annual business meeting. How many of you have led an annual business meeting at your church? Ah, just a couple of us. The rest of you, God bless you. What a great experience that is. If you ever want to know what the world is really like, have an annual business meeting. Because the Christians will show up, but they'll act like they've never heard of Jesus Christ. Some of the most unchristian things I've ever seen have happened at annual business meetings or at congregational business meetings or sessions or conferences, whatever your nomenclature is. I know a guy here in Florida some many years ago. He had pastored this church for about 10 plus years, I think, and he was going on vacation, but they had gone through the whole process of putting together a search for an associate pastor, and they had their candidate They'd already brought him in. It was already, you know, they'd, they'd already had the candidating process. Everything was smooth. And he said, listen, I've got this vacation. My, my wife and I said, we're going to go on vacation. You guys have the business meeting. It's just about voting somebody in. We're all in favor of it. And so he went on vacation. When he got back, he asked, how was the uh, business meeting? And they said, well, it was a little different than what you thought. He said, well, the only item of business was hiring the associate. Did you do that? They said, no, because when they got up to say, we want to hire this associate, somebody raised their hand and said, we don't need an associate. We need a new pastor. And they voted him out while he was on vacation. I wish I could tell you that that's a strange occurrence, but it just isn't, because when the church sits as a council of wisdom, my experience is that rarely does much wisdom come out of it. And it starts in the book of Acts. Councils produce letters that are ignored, just like they do here. They write a letter and say, you got to do all these things. And as far as I can tell, there isn't much of this that gets obeyed or listened to or followed, even by those to whom the letter ends up being read and written to. It, councils of wisdom like to produce things called statements and creeds that have to then be amended and clarified. They then have to be interpreted and misinterpreted. It is all this political intrigue and infighting, and I know I'm stepping on all kinds of toes here, and I didn't want to preach this sermon here either. 
because I know there's all kinds of intrigue going on in churches and all the groups that you're a part of, and I get it, but I just frankly think that somebody needs to stand up based on this text and say, what do you do when counsels of wisdom simply don't produce much wisdom? Because it happens again and again, time and time out in the life of the church. Well, I have a radical proposal. And I know that this is going to pigeonhole me and put me in a particular place and all that, and I'm just willing to live there. So here's my radical idea. Let's replace councils of wisdom with Holy Spirit leadership. Well, that was pretty timid, so thank you. I appreciate the amens. You got it in without anybody noticing who did it. Thank you very much. I know I'm out here on an island by myself, but I got to tell you, I haven't just seen where you get together with the Council of Wisdom and Holy Spirit leadership comes out of it. It seems more like politics comes out of it. Why don't we just say, hey, instead of getting all this time and effort in the Council of Wisdoms, how about if, I don't know, we listen to the Holy Spirit? That would be a radical idea. That would also produce some radical results, wouldn't it? I mean, Peter had no desire whatsoever for the Gentiles to be included until the Holy Spirit became the leader. If it had been up to Peter, we'd still be separated or not going to the Gentile would still be a Jewish sect. Paul didn't have any desire to affirm Jesus Christ. He had orders and he had papers and he was the chief persecutor of Christians. And he was happy with the job until the Holy Spirit got involved, and all of a sudden now he is not the chief persecutor or prosecutor, he's the chief defender of the faith. And this council, this council had no desire whatsoever to shut down the Pharisees and the Pharisaical influence into the theology of Jesus Christ. And in the end, they just didn't follow the Holy Spirit's leadership and it created problems for the rest of the New Testament age. Because the most common problem in the churches that talk about in Acts and that are written to in the New Testament is the conflict between Jews and Gentiles. Why? Because they had a council of wisdom in Jerusalem, and it didn't produce much wisdom. Folks, I, I know it's a radical idea, but I think Holy Spirit leadership ought to be a much higher priority for us than just consensus and getting votes. Now that's easy for me because I'm no longer a pastor and I have to worry about consensus and getting votes. And I'm not a member of the administration and I thank God for Steve Gober and I thank God for people that are in the administration because I would absolutely go bonkers and go nuts and they all know this and they've seen me. I'd go nuts if I had to deal with all that stuff again. I know it's easy for me to take cheap shots up here but I am firmly convinced that Holy Spirit leadership is the only answer to the kind of political intrigue and mess that we have, and it doesn't matter what the name of your church is. We've all got it, and we're all infected by it. When Holy Spirit leadership gets involved, things happen that you don't intend. Luther didn't intend to start a Protestant Reformation. He put 95 theses on the wall, and he said the Catholic Church ought to get better. He didn't think of it that way. It happened. Holy Spirit gets involved and things actually radically changed. Wesley didn't want to leave the Anglican Church. He was fully committed to it. He didn't want to start this whole Wesleyan movement. You know, Asbury wouldn't listen to him in North America, and off we went. Just up from, from the campus in Wilmore in Lexington is a little place called Cane Ridge. 
Cane Ridge is just a little nothing spot in the road. And in 1801, they had a couple of churches that were coming together to have a communion service and a weekend of revival. And it got out that there were some exciting things that might be happening. And there had been some camp meetings kind of things that had gone around. And so they figured, this would be really good. We'll have a couple of hundred people here. And that was what they planned for, a couple of hundred people. They made sure that all the participating congregations got these little chits, these little chips that they could hand out to their members so that when it came for communion, only the Christians would be taking communion. You had to give the minister your chip before you could take communion. Because we got to do it, you know, right? Because this is what God wants. He wants it nice and orderly. And so they were expecting maybe a few hundred, maybe that have, wow, could it be that we might even have as many as 500 people that would come, and they were so excited about that, they erected a tent. Because the congregation, the, the sanctuary, if you stood back to back, could seat about 500 people, maybe. I think that's a stretch. But they had a tent. Maybe they'd have over 500. It'd be great. And so they started advertising. They'd be having these. It's 1801. It's not like people jumped in their car and drove across the country. And at the height of the Cane Ridge experience, 25,000 people had showed up. It became the largest city in Kentucky for two weeks. They came from North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Virginia, the Northeast. They came from everywhere. How do you do that in 1801 when there isn't some kind of media to advertise it? The only way it happens is if Holy Spirit leadership was involved. They had two services, one going on in the tent, one going on in the uh, sanctuary, but they were so crowded that people started jumping up on logs and stumps and that have a congregation of a thousand and that preach away. And blacks came, and boy, they shouldn't have done that, but they came. They came, and these services were integrated, and then black ministers started showing up, and they'd jump up on logs, and African-Americans would go, and they would hear the gospel being presented by someone that looked like them. And all of a sudden, the blacks and the whites are together, and people are having these experiences of the Holy Spirit. And some nine-year-old girl started, she was on her father's uh, shoulders, and this nine-year-old girl suddenly reached up, and she started preaching the gospel more sophisticated than any 35-year-old doctoral student could do and when she was so exhausted after preaching the gospel and hundreds of people watching this and just amazed she was so exhausted she leaned her head on her father's head and just kind of almost looked like she fell, fell asleep and somebody said oh poor girl she's exhausted and all of a sudden she jumped back up and she looked and she said don't call me poor don't call me poor. I've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ is my Savior, and I am anything but poor. I am rich in Him. Come on, folks, this is a nine-year-old girl. And it happened over and over and over again for several weeks. And you know why it ended? It didn't end because the Spirit was exhausted and because it all finished and somebody said amen. It ran out because after two weeks of 25,000 people being in this area, there literally was no food. They had exhausted all the food in the countryside and in Lexington, and they had to go home. And the Holy Spirit kept spreading the revival from place to place and town to town throughout the Midwest, and as the United States moved forward, the spirit and the spirit of revivalism moved with it. With it. They did not intend to have an American Pentecost at Cane Ridge. All they weren't getting together for was some communion, and a couple of services. 
But when Holy Spirit leadership gets involved, my, my, things can happen. You know what the difference is between the Council of Wisdom and the Holy Spirit as its leadership? That when you have a Council of Wisdom, people are vying to, to make sure that their position gets voted on. When Holy Spirit leadership takes place, people start submitting to the Holy Spirit and worry less about their own agendas. That's why we submit to the Holy Spirit. Once power, once your power is submitted to the Holy Spirit, then believers can concentrate not on getting their position, being the winning position, but you begin to concentrate on doing the will of God. Wouldn't that be exciting? I encourage you, lead your congregations in revival. I don't care whether you have weekend services or what you do, but lead them in a revival of Holy Spirit leadership. I'm not suggesting I've got a plan and a program and here are the four points and the four ways to do this, but I'm saying that we've started relying so much on councils of wisdom. Isn't it about time that we relied, relied on the Holy Spirit? Martin Luther King left the church and went out to the world with a message of the gospel that changed America and changed the world. Mother Teresa left the church and went into the streets and changed the way in which we looked at those who were poor and destitute and outcasts. Henry Nouwen left the halls of academia and said, let me go to where the people are hurting the most and he spent the last year of his, years of his life, this brilliant academic and writer and theologian, he spent the last years of his life with mentally and physically handicapped people in a hospital ministering to them. Folks, when Holy Spirit leadership takes hold of you, you never know what will happen, and praise God for that. Would you stand with me? Dear Lord, I pray that you will have your spirit fall on us today and that your leadership would become preeminent in each of us. We're tired of doing business just as the same old, same old. There's got to be something that grips hold of the life of the church and the life of our communities and that uh, changes the way in which things are going. We're not, we've looked to Washington. That's a joke. We've looked to those who are in politics, it doesn't work. We've looked to the business leaders in our country and in our world, and we find that they're after themselves. We've looked at the high-profile pastors on TV and found out that they are charlatans. Lord, it's got to start somewhere, and it might as well start with us. We know we're not anything big, and we know we don't have the greatest of congregations or the biggest sizes or the most influence or whatever it is, but, oh, Lord, Cane Ridge wasn't very big either until you got hold of it. And something happened there, and we pray, O oh Lord, that a revival will happen wherever it is that we are. Not because we want something to happen, Lord, but because we want you to have full reign. We ask you to be our vision. Not our own, but ask you to be our vision. Open us up and let us see what it is that you want from us. In Jesus' name, amen.